This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hi, and welcome to the second episode in our Extreme Weather Podcast series. With severe weather events increasing in frequency and impact, we're looking at the legal issues surrounding these events. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by my colleagues, Nicole Tomiati, Chris Sacre, and Kendall Messer to discuss risks for the fast-moving consumer goods sector where impacts of extreme weather go beyond physical damage and reach into the supply chain. Welcome to you all, and thank you very much for participating. Nicole, I wanted to start with you and look at how extreme weather creates risk for the fast-moving consumer goods sector generally. Thank you, Mark. Um, when we think about the impact of severe weather events, um, what we often first think of, and rightly so, is the local direct impact. So the impact that the weather event has on things like physical assets, such as the premises, the plant equipment, and the inventory that our clients are holding. And, and also severe weather um, can have an impact on the availability of labour. Uh, obviously, these impacts are significant and represent a material risk to those businesses that are affected. Um, however, for many of our clients in the fast-moving uh, goods sector, their businesses are dependent on complex supply chains. The end products they produce, buy and sell, are often made up from multiple components sourced from you know, domestically and from overseas. Therefore, any disruption in the supply chain caused by extreme weather events can have a domino effect on other parties who rely on that supply chain. Um, the knock-on effect can be seen as increased prices, delays in supply, and in some cases, even unavailability of key components. Great. Kendall, Australia by its nature is an island, which means that much of the product that finds its way here has to find its way by ship. I wonder if you could please give us some, an overview of the issues and the difficulties that extreme weather creates for all of the product that needs to get here by ship and through our ports. Yeah, Mark, you're absolutely right. Um, approximately 1.7 billion Australian dollars of consumer goods are imported and exported annually. And as you said, the majority of that trade comes by ship through our ports. In terms of physical risks, the first risks are during the carriage by ship. Ships lose containers, and although they are responsible for worldwide trade day in, day out, they are not designed to withstand all loads. In terms of extreme weather, cyclones in the northern parts of Australia are an example. And keep in mind that most of our trade comes from places north of Australia and travels through that cyclone zone on every voyage during our summer. Once the goods arrive in Australia, they are stored, imported and distributed, but that's not without risk either. During storage, after unloading and later at consolidation locations, they are at risk of rain and flood damage and possibly also bushfires. Specific trade sectors are at further risk. For example, cars can suffer hail damage at the port immediately after unloading from the Roro vessel, during truck transport, at the receiver's yard following delivery, and then even at the car yard when awaiting sale. Um, Kendall, you refer to the shipping containers and um, how ships lose containers. I'm always intrigued, what happens to those containers that get lost at sea? Uh, that is actually a really good question, Mark. Uh, mo in most cases, they end up at the bottom of the ocean and they quite happily stay there. Although some regulators internationally, and Australia's Maritime Safety Authority is one of them, is quite keen to have those retrieved as they are classed as a type of pollution. Okay, great. 
And you mentioned um, about that once the goods get here, then there are, are risks of bushfire and flood, uh, et cetera, while they're in storage um, and then moving on. Chris, would you like to pick up on that point, please? Yes, Mark. I mean, we've seen that really recently with, with flooding across the, the eastern states. And three years ago, when we were in drought, we had the bushfire season and, and roads were shut and, and roads were blocked off and ports were blocked, potentially rail lines were blocked too. And all of that leads to delay in the supply chain because a huge amount of Australian trade goes by truck and truck and rail inland. But, but even more um, subtly, really, when a ship comes into port and you have a big storm, say, at Port Botany, uh, and you want your gantry cranes to operate to take thousands of containers on and off the ship. If the winds are too high, those cranes can't operate. If the sea state is too rough, the ship can't get in and out of her berth safely. And that all has a knock-on effect, um, leading to delay to those containers through the supply chain, maybe by a few hours, but maybe by a few days. That feeds into uh, time-sensitive sectors like the fast-moving consumer goods sector. I've certainly had times, Chris, where I wish the delay was only a few hours, I've got to say. But um, so there's a lot of risk involved with um, with all of this. How are we helping our clients manage some of these risks that come up? Um, one of the ways we can help our clients is by examining their contractual arrangements uh, with both their suppliers and with their customers um, and ensuring that their direct and indirect risks associated with extreme weather events are properly addressed. In any contract involving the supply of goods, the allocation of risk for loss or damage of those goods, including as a result of extreme weather event, will be material. Um, some of the things that we look at uh, for a client when we're looking at their supply arrangements will be things such as uh, whether the arrangements are on an exclusive basis. Um, the greater the reliance on a single supplier, the greater the risk. Um, the dependence our clients have on any unique goods or ingredients. Um, to the, if those goods or ingredients were be, to become unavailable, could our clients continue to conduct business? Um, also shoring up minimum supply amounts and having a clear understanding or a clear provisions in the contract as to what happens if those minimum supply amounts aren't met. Um, and also we encourage our clients to undertake due diligence on their suppliers um, to make sure that they've got appropriate emergency procedures in place and also that they've got secure supply arrangements in place, noting that often the suppliers will, there'll be a number of players in the chain to bring the goods to our client. Um, when we're looking at our clients' customer contracts, so where they're the supplier, some of the things that we will consider is whether or not there's a robust force majeure clause in the contract. Um, effectively, a force majeure clause is a contractual mechanism that relieves a party from performing its obligations if it's subject to circumstances uh, where they can't perform due to events outside their control. Now, often that will include severe weather events, but not always. Um, how a force majeure clause is interpreted uh, depends on the, that specific contract. So parties looking at their contracts will want to make sure that, that if they have a force majeure clause, it appropriately covers off the kinds of weather events that they might be subject to. The other thing that we want, we would generally want to see in our clients' uh, contracts with their customers is appropriate limitations on liability. Um, and that might be a number of things. Uh, it might be a cap on the maximum liabilities, the maximum amount that they could be sued under the contract. Uh, could be excluding certain damages, whether or not that be 
specific risks or excluding consequential damages, for example, um, and also building in a mechanism for how claims will actually be managed, ensuring claims are notified, that there's a me method for responding to those claims and also obligations on the party to mitigate losses. Um, I think though one of the important messages that we try to give our clients is that they shouldn't negotiate their commercial contracts in a vacuum. They've got to be across their insurance arrangements as well because uh, ideally the risk that they assume on, on a contractual basis will be covered off by insurance. That's a great segue into insurance, Nicole, and thank you. You've covered off on some of the ways that commercially and contractually some of the risks can be managed. I wonder, Chris, could you start by giving us an overview of some of the insurance issues that, are, that arise and how, we, how our clients need to pick that up? Thanks, Mark. Yeah, insurance is a really important area and marine insurance is a really specialist area. And those owning or having an interest in cargo transported nationally and internationally generally purchase what we refer to as marine cargo insurance. And don't, don't be deceived by the name the marine insurance market includes goods carried by land and the policies you'll find in the market are generally written on internationally accepted clauses, which we call the Institute cargo clauses. And without wishing to get too technical, the reason why we use these internationally accepted market clauses is because when selling goods on a CIF basis, that's cost insurance freight when you're buying internationally, it's implied that the insurance that you're going to get with those goods will meet a minimum cover threshold. And so by using internationally standard clauses, we have certainty achieved in that regard. So that's the sort of technical introduction to why we're going to talk about these institute cargo clauses. There are a myriad of clauses to consider when you're placing your insurance. Um, you might need something called a pairs and sets clause to cover losses associated with part of a set becoming lost or damaged. You might want a brands and labels clause to protect your brand from the sale of salvaged goods into the market at a lower value. But from an extreme weather perspective, I think we should focus closely on the coverage you have for delay and loss of market. Um, and this is particularly important for perishable goods, um, but it'll also be important for those wishing to receive goods to meet a time sensitive contractual or market opportunity. And I'm going to disappoint our listeners because marine insurers are acutely aware of the high risk of delay in international and local trade. Uh, and in response, the Institute cargo clauses completely exclude all loss, damage or expense caused by delay, even if the root cause of that delay is a, is a cause that would otherwise be, be insured. So the effect is that you won't have any cover for damage to your cargo or, or loss of value in your cargo that is caused by delay, um, even if there is physical damage to a perishable cargo. If you've got a frozen or a chilled cargo, you may be able to buy a broader cover uh, on what are called the frozen or chilled food or meat extension clauses. And that cover will indemnify you for physical loss, so deterioration of the cargo caused by delay of a perishable good. But it will still won't cover pure market loss if your goods arrive too late to meet a contractual deadline or a market opportunity and values lost as a, as a result. So it's very difficult to ensure those types of risks. 
So without wanting to be the bearer of, of bad news, when it comes to supply chain delays caused by extreme weather, the insurance market is unlikely to be picking up the tab. And therefore, it becomes even more important to shift the risk contractually um, or by good operational planning. Well, Kendall, can I ask you, if you can't insure the risk completely, as Chris has just alluded to, what about the carriers? How can we get them to guarantee timely carriage to meet market deadlines that we need to meet with the product? Well, Mark, in short, we can't get them to make that guarantee. Um, the global supply chain is dependent on carriers, whether that is you know, sea, road, air or rail. And without them, the world economy and the fast moving consumer goods sector simply can't operate. So carriers receive significant preferential treatment from legislators worldwide. And this might not seem fair, but there are public policy justifications for it. All goods must be transported from somewhere. And while some are relatively local, some take very long journeys, champagne from France, for example. So the impact of regulation on the transport industry is extremely broad. If carriers are held liable for all damage suffered by goods in their care, their prices and the prices of their insurance will increase to balance the spreadsheets or to finance the type of controls required to protect all goods to that high standard. The result is that every single item in every single store becomes more expensive to finance the cost and risks of transport. As such, it is seen as being in everyone's interest to keep transport costs low and allowing exclusion of liability to do so. I'll share a couple examples of how the law treats transport differently. The Australian Consumer Law at Schedule 2 to the Competition and Consumer Act provides some excellent consumer protection laws. And although they are named consumer laws, certain parts apply also to protect businesses. For example, the prohibitions for misleading or deceptive conduct and the unfair contract term protections for small businesses. However, there are carve outs in those protections for transport and storage service providers and for those involved in carriage of goods by sea. Not just the carriers, but freight forwarders may be covered also. For example, the Australian Consumer Law guarantees that services will be provided with due care and skill or within a reasonable time. And these do not apply to contracts relating to the transportation or storage of goods for the purpose of business and trade. The result is that while the end consumer is entitled to those protections, people in business in the fast moving consumer goods sector do not have these statutory protections they must be expressly contractually agreed. As for the carriage of goods by sea, a couple of issues that the fast moving consumer goods sector should be aware of are, firstly, that the unfair contract terms protections at part 3.1 of the Australian Consumer Law do not apply to contracts for the carriage of goods by ship. This means that contracts for sea carriage do not have to comply with the unfair contract term requirements that apply to almost all other small businesses in Australia Again, this doesn't seem fair, but it's part of the mechanism required to keep this sector going. And one last example, specific to extreme weather. If a loss during sea carriage is caused by a peril of the sea, think extreme winds, waves, loss of containers over the side of a ship, that loss is excluded and the carrier will not be liable. Again, risk must be proactively managed by those involved in the sector. Thank you, Kendall. So, in conclusion, perhaps, can I ask each of you if you're going to make one recommendation to our listeners with regard to managing and mitigating the significant risks that we've been talking through today, what would it be? Perhaps if we could start with you, Chris. So I'll start with the bad news, as I described earlier. 
um, the insurers are not going to pick up uh, the losses caused by delay. Um, but you can look closely at your insurance arrangements and really, really understand the extent to which they, they cover those risks and try to optimize them by talking to your brokers and negotiating with your insurers. What about you, Kendall? Look, I absolutely agree with what Chris has said. With the summer that's coming, cyclone season in the north, a La Nina forecast, the sector really needs to pay close attention to what they're doing operationally with their transport arrangements and how the risk of damage and delay is shared within the sector with the carrier or their freight forwarder as well. Great, thank you. And last but by no means least, Nicole, what if, what's your one recommendation you would make? My one recommendation would be to review your supply chain and critically examine how resilient it would be uh, if impacted by severe weather events. Um, in other words, is your business model sustainable in the face of increasing if severe weather events, um, both increasing in terms of severity and frequency? And if not, what measures should you put in place now, both practically and contractually, to mitigate those risks? Great. Thank you. I want to finish by thanking each of Nicole, Chris and Kendall um, for joining me today. It's been a great example of the national footprint that Hall & Wilcox has that we've had participants in this podcast from each of Melbourne, Sydney and Perth. I also want to thank all of our listeners. We trust that you find the information useful in today's episode and please reach out to us if you have any questions. You can find details on our website, hallandwilcox.com.au or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review and follow our podcast wherever you listen to them. You can subscribe on our website to be notified of new episodes. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.